Welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I'm your host, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Luke Boggs. Luke, how numb is your brain after working on this uh, law school brief all weekend? Uh, I am aware of words, I think. Aware of words? Yes. <laughs> well, we're going to speak some words this week. Some, Unfortunately, some sad words about some sad events. This is uh, not was not a good news week at all. Um, this is another one of those weeks that... I left feeling very somber just for the whole lot of all of the things that we talk about. Um, So unfortunately, not an uplifting show. But uh, for our topics this week, for our first topic, we're going to discuss a proposal that's in a conference committee between the state house and state senate right now that would increase the amount of taxpayer money that flows to private schools through this um, mechanism called the student scholarship organizations. These are organizations that collect donations from private individuals um, who then receive a dollar for dollar tax credit for the donation that they make. And then they sponsor students to go to private schools and, and this pushes kids out of public schools and into private schools Um, that program was previously capped. And so what we're going to discuss today is a proposal that increases the amount of money that can flow through that program and out of Georgia state government and into private schools. For our second topic this week, we're going to discuss a constitutional amendment on the Senate side. Uh, This amendment would require that the state of Georgia only conduct almost all of its business in English, in the English language only. The most noticeable change for people uh, if this constitutional amendment was to come to pass would be that you could no longer take a driver's license test in any language other than English, and the state would not be allowed to print any election ballots in any language other than English. So we're going to talk about what the impacts of that proposal would be and some of the roots of these ideas that are uh, pretty plainly racist and designed to uh, reduce the amount of immigrants that come to the United States. Um, It has a long and pretty dark history that we're going to look back into. And then for our final topic this week, we're going to discuss the tragic shooting uh, at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Uh, 17 people were killed when a former student entered the school last week, uh, set off the fire alarms, and then basically opened fire on students uh, who were trying to run for cover. It's another one of these really tragic, painful shootings uh, that we've seen many of in this country. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit about this event and whether or not this one will uh, be able to push Congress or or maybe even Florida state government into action to make it harder for people to access guns and hopefully make these things less likely. Uh, but if you've been listening to us for a while or if you've just been paying attention to politics basically since 2012, uh, I wouldn't put the prospects of this changing the equation very high. Um, but let's start with our first topic this week. So right now there's a proposal Uh, that's in a conference committee between the state house and the state Senate, it would allow an increase in the amount of money that can flow through the student scholarship organization program that uh, funds scholarships for students to leave public school and go to private school. This is a part of the broader discussion around school choice that often goes on in the legislature. And it's part of a couple of other programs and ideas that are being discussed that would push more state funding out of the current K through 12 system and into private schools by pushing students out of the current K 12 system and into private schools. Um, And it's one that has sharply divided Democrats and Republicans for quite a while. Uh, Democrats are, are pretty quick to claim to point out. The important thing is that the state consistently underfunds public schools. And yet we have a lot of these proposals that, would push more money out of our K-12 system. Um, Luke, let's start with just sort of your first thoughts on this proposal. This proposal would increase basically the amount of money available in a policy that already exists. So should this be something that Democrats are concerned about if this is something that's already happening? Well, I think it is because this structure is not a bad structure in itself of funding things that the state wants to prioritize uh, in, you know, giving people an opportunity to be charitable with their money, I think is a positive thing. However, I think this is not 
where we want people to be spending their money, especially when there's already uh, deep underfunding in the schools of this state. And, you know, as as we have harped on many a times, uh, the QBE formula has remained underfunded uh, basically since the Republicans took over and no real sign of anyone actually trying to get it back to full funding. And so when schools are already underfunded, it would probably not be the best move to continue the encouragement of disinvestment from public schools. Yeah, no, I think that this is an opportunity for Democrats to stand up and say that we've been pushing policy in the wrong direction this whole time. Um, interestingly, Stacey Abrams, in one of her proposals, she would pay for a program that she wants to start uh, by reallocating the student scholarship organization funds. Um, so at least in the governor's race, there is a conversation around changing direction on this. Uh, unfortunately for Democrats in the House and the Senate, they don't really have the numbers to block this. Uh, because this is, you know, unlike the constitutional amendment that we'll talk about in the second segment, this is just a regular bill. And so the vote on this would, it would only be 50% plus one of the House and the Senate to let this go through. So, so this is something that, uh, you know, Democrats have not had the authority to stop before. And school choice is certainly something that is a um, a priority of Republicans. The the thing that I think has been kind of frustrating about this conversation to me is that there's clearly a philosophical difference between Democrats and Republicans about school choice and the role that private schools can play. Um, but what stands out to me is that the private schools that participate in this student scholarship organization program, they don't operate with any of the accountability that public schools have. So they don't have the same standards or testing. Um, and then when they are participating in this program by taking state funds, they don't even do any of the reporting uh, basic information that we can find out about public schools in the state of Georgia. We can't find out any information about things like which schools participate in this program which admissions methods accept these kids? So, so are the are there certain admissions methods that accept kids from low income families or, or people uh, from more diverse backgrounds? We also don't know, you know, what sort of the income breakdown is for for the kids that benefit from this program. So, to me, that's kind of problematic because we're allowing taxpayer dollars to go out the door, and we don't even really know what we're getting for that. Um, it just goes through a non-governmental organization in these student scholarship organizations and ends up with private schools. Um, and these private and these student scholarship organizations are uh, advertising this program to donors by saying basically that you can choose where some of your taxpayer dollars go because this is a dollar for dollar tax credit donation so that every dollar that you donate you're going to get back in your taxes. So you're not even getting just like a little bonus for being generous with your donation. You're donating state taxpayer money, not really your own money because you're getting fully refunded. Um, and so, so to have that structure and then to have no accountability for it to me is pretty problematic. I mean, this is exactly what we were talking about last time with the uh, adoption agencies and this you know, urge by some folks to allow the agencies to operate without oversight. And again, here we are, <laughs> you know, deja vu all over again, where there are certain factions in the Republican Party that want to create separate infrastructures from every other system that we're trying to work on and, you know, have less accountability for them. And it's really... Disheartening, but also concerning why they seem so adamant in creating these separate structures away from the government. And I have not heard really good convincing reasons uh, why they want to do this. Um, it kind of goes back again to what we were talking about last time with how they just seem to have an urge to not have any oversight on what they do. And then if you catch them off guard, they, what they say they want to do is to, uh, discriminate against certain groups. And that's not really things that it's, it's our, our public dollar should be going towards. 
I, I've seen really interesting reporting lately from Rebecca Klein. She's a, a educational reporter at Huffington Post. She's done a series of stories where she's looked at schools across the country, private schools that receive taxpayer funds. And Georgia data is a part of her research. And she looked at kind of two different uh, questions in some of her reporting. She looked one at the curriculum that some of these private schools use and what how that curriculum compares to what you might expect out of your average public school. Um, and then she looked at policies that are stated by the school as to whether or not they would discriminate against LGBT students or if they would hire LGBT staff to work at the school. Um, and Georgia is not different than a lot of the other, particularly a lot of the other Southern states in this data that they've looked at. Um, there's three types of curriculum that they've looked at basically it's sort of just like different textbook authors, um, that supply textbooks to some of these schools. Um, and so her data shows that there's, there's three types of curriculum. There's something called a Baker curriculum. There's Bob Jones university's curriculum and then there's this other uh, curriculum known as the ACE curriculum. And for these three different uh, education curricula that these schools teach, there were 91 schools in Georgia that used the Abeka curriculum, 56 that used Bob Jones, and nine schools that used this ACE curriculum. And some of the things that you find in these textbooks that Rebecca Klein's research found as she looked into this stuff. The Bob Jones textbooks, they portray Islam as a violent religion. Uh, the ACE textbooks say that God was punishing people for the Civil War. Um, and then the ACE textbooks also say that after women gained the right to vote and worked outside the home, they began to act increasingly act in increasingly anti-Christian ways, including cutting their hair and wearing short skirts. Um, so these are sort of like the most egregious examples that were pulled out. But she also talked to a student that had been through some of these schools in different states, including one one school, Franklin Christian Academy in Georgia, that appears to not be open anymore. But in addition to some of the like sort of bad individual pieces of information that you can pull out of these various curriculum, when she talked to one of the students that had gone through the school, she she found that this student basically said that when she entered the world and was doing like job interviews and thinking about college and trying to like be an adult, her education did not prepare her at all to be a functioning adult in a society outside of a little uh, Christian school. And so this girl went through depression. She had a hard time figuring out if she wanted to go on to post-secondary education or not. And her life was really thrown off track by the fact that she was in one of these schools that wasn't accountable to uh, state government in the way that our schools are currently accountable to state government. And it basically, she was not set up for success in a school setting that is outside of the usual oversight that we have. And so this is another instance in which, you know, looking back at the discussion that we had about the adoption bill last week, it's not that these schools are like 100% terrible for every kid that ever goes through them. And there are obviously families who are Christian who would like to have some sort of religious education for their children. But when you look at certain cases like these, these worst case scenarios for students that were bullied, or students whose education was thrown completely off track by a curriculum that doesn't prepare them to enter the real world. I think that this is another instance in which the state has to be a little more aggressive in oversight in these worst case scenarios and look out for students who wouldn't succeed in these schools. And at the bare minimum, our taxpayer dollars shouldn't go to subsidize uh, schools that deliver this this kind of education to students and, and leave them so unprepared. Yeah, because, you know, I'm definitely one of those people that while I'm not incredibly sympathetic, I am a little sympathetic to the argument that, you know, private schools can uh, do things that public schools can't. They can. It's a lot easier for them to kind of beg a test new education strategies and all all those sorts of things. And those are arguments that most people that probably are listening to the show have heard before. But my thing is, is that this program is already getting close to, you know, being at as big as the hole we have in our education funding and instead of creating this tax break 
for rich people to send their kids to private schools that, you know, then teach them a curriculum that's probably not hitting any of the standards that we received and even I received in rural Georgia at a public school. It's probably not the best use of our tax dollars, and it would be a lot better if we would just fully invest and believe in the public school system instead of constantly trying to find ways to um, avoid teaching people, you know, curriculums that are challenging to their, you know, families' belief systems. Yeah, just a note on the numbers. So the QBE gap for schools in this, uh, the fiscal 2019 budget is 167 million. So we're underfunding the formula by 167 million. Currently, the value of the student scholarship organization program is $58 million each year. And the two bills that are, or the two proposals that are presumably being discussed in the conference committee would raise the cap to either 65 million or 85 million. So you're approaching about the half the size of the QBE gap that we have now. But there was a bill last year, and we might have talked about this last year, but there was a bill last year that would have increased the cap to 100 million. Um, And so in that instance, you're getting even closer and closer to the amount that we're just simply underfunding our schools at this point. So I think that, you know, that's kind of problematic that we would, we're prioritizing sending kids to private schools that are unaccountable and we're not fully funding the schools that we have. The thing that kind of stands out to me about this though, in terms of like, I know that people are going to disagree with, with me and my, and my views on this. Um, And a lot of what's happened for Christian conservatives who were not happy about the Supreme Court's ruling legalizing same-sex marriage is that they went from trying to establish what the law should be for everyone in a way that discriminated against same-sex couples and LGBT people. Um, And they've now kind of backed off to trying to just carve themselves out of the law and to allow them to operate in the way that they want. But to to do so in their own circles in a way that they argue doesn't affect anybody else. Um, And so it's odd to me that while doing that, you're also looking for a handout from state government to support, to bring taxpayer dollars into something that is clearly uh, the law has decided is, is not. I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's, it's that they are, you know, Serving certain demographic groups, uh, one ones that you know uh, my family and I am currently a part of, which is you know white Christian males, have been in charge of this country for a very long time. It's been unquestioned that they have been charged. Now they're being questioned, and they don't like it. And so they're realizing that they can't just keep dictating policy to everyone for forever, and that this is they're they're trying to have a consolation prize, and you know trying to force their beliefs on people. They're trying to just hold themselves away, but still get government benefits. And it's obvious to me that that's what they're trying to do, and that they just you know want to hold on to whatever power they can. And it's very strange to me. I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't understand really why. Yeah, the argument usually says in this says that taking away either taking away money from a program like this or, you know, there was the the Johnson Amendment that prohibits churches from participating in political speech that we've talked about before. And this was part of Trump's uh, one of his olive branches to evangelicals at the time was saying that he would uh, end this amendment and allow churches to take part in public uh, political speech. They they always infer, they always argue that not having access to government funds is like an infringement on their ability to practice their religion, despite the fact that they're trying to remove themselves from the public sphere. And so it's it's odd to me that uh, more and more they they want to take some of their money with them on the way out the door. Um, and and I don't know. I guess they they just don't seem to understand that the public money is not theirs, and so it just seems problematic to me that, that it, it's just like, there's no brainer that this money should just follow kids out of, out of the, the public system. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, may, maybe, maybe we need to have someone on here that is a strong supporter of this because at this point I, I have never been a fan of funding private schools this way or these, you know, private religious schools that, aren't held to the same standards because, you know, some of my very good friends who I'm in law school with, I went to UGA with, 
uh, went to uh, a more religious school, but they like had very high standards. They, you know, did really well academically. Uh, when I talk about the curriculum, uh, there was really not that much of a difference. It was just that they kind of carved out time for more religious teaching and in addition to pretty good, you know, standardized public education. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. I want to very explicitly carve out good schools, good private schools that, you know, have a religious element to them. There's definitely exceptions to this larger group that we're frustrated with. But it's just the damage that's being done to society and to those students is so large that I think at the very least, if we are going to allocate more money to this structure this you know this student scholarship organizations then i think at the very least democrats if not fighting against it need to be fighting for more accountability and that's you know the bare minimum we should accept yeah and the reason to have more accountability is that broadly other school choice mechanisms like school vouchers there's been a lot of research lately that has shown that these voucher programs actually hurt student performance it's an odd thing in in education research literature but uh, researchers are finding that you know most of the time when you try to do some sort of education reform, you either succeed and so student achievement improves, or you fail but student achievement kind of stays the same. So you just didn't do a good job. Um, in this case, voucher programs in Indiana, Louisiana, and Ohio have actually shown that students who moved from public schools to private schools or comparable students between public schools and private schools that the performance of kids in the school choice voucher programs is actually worse and that some of them have been harmed by going to the private schools. And so I think um, in addition to this debate over whether or not funds should go to things that broadly people don't think are right, including discrimination against LGBT kids, some of the kids that leave these programs and end up in, in private schools are doing worse. And so I think that that is another element of this that, you know, we, I talked last week about how the churches needed to prove it to me or not to me specifically, but to us broadly about how they would ensure student protections in a new sort of separate adoption system outside of state oversight. And this is another one of those where in terms of student achievement, prove it to us that these schools are doing a better job because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they that they don't. Let's move on to our second topic. So Senator Josh McCoon is sort our of the buddy, main driving. Our buddy, Josh. Yeah, yeah, friend of the pod, Josh McCoon. Uh, he is kind of the driving force right now behind a constitutional amendment that would prohibit the state from doing any governmental business and any uh, language other than English, with the exception of a few things that are protected under federal law that have to do with like public safety. Uh, but broadly, the, the most important and most noticeable changes uh, that this constitutional amendment would bring for people who have limited English proficiency is that you wouldn't be able to take a driver's test with uh, in any language other than English, and there would the state would not be allowed to print election ballots in any language other than English. Luke, this is one that hit the news uh, pretty big, and, and Democrats came out strongly against it. What do you think about this proposal from Josh McCoon? Well, uh, I'm not saying that Josh McCoon is a white supremacist, but he's doing a lot of things that seem to support white supremacy. <laughs> so... He, he he might he might be he might be there's there's some there's something there there's there's a there there uh because and this is not the first time we 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 know and love josh McCoon on this program uh we we've given him grief for just about every session because he has terrible ideas and uh terrible motivations i was gonna say love him not ideas. the things he yeah, does josh McCoon as a human being you know he he's he's uh I have nothing nice to say, uh, so I, I'm just going to try to avoid that and just focus on what what I was getting at is that Josh McCoon seems to like to skate this line in that he supports a lot of things that the Breitbart folks of the world really, really like, but he just doesn't do it in like the same rhetoric that we've been seeing. So like, for example, as we've discussed 
Michael Williams like goes out there and like beats the drum and uses very bright bargaining rhetoric for everything that he does. Whereas like Josh McCoon like coats everything and like his fake reasonableness and that, you know, if Josh McCoon's out there, I hope you are Josh. Uh, he will probably give me grief for call, you know, saying and say that I call him a white supremacist and he will, you know, be, uh, very, very upset about that because he doesn't like, he'll be incensed. Yeah. He'll be incensed. Yes. Cause that's just like his whole, his whole bag is that he'll like do really radical things, but he'll do them reasonably or in a way that appears reasonable and then he'll get upset. And so he's, just, he's trying to have it both ways. Is, is what I'm getting at in that this is obviously a political ploy for him because he's running for secretary of state and he's trying to do something that will, you know, get his base fired up. Well, speaking of the secretary of state's race, uh, what do we think this says about, about what kind of secretary of state McCoon would be? I mean, he doesn't get to make the law as secretary of state. So to a certain extent, he has to, he has to implement election law the way that it is written in the state of Georgia and a, a democratic state legislature and a democratic governor could pass policies that force ballots to be in languages other than English. And McCoon wouldn't be able to do anything about it. That would just be, he would have to enforce the law the way that it's written. Um, but to the extent that there is gray area and to the extent that he is clearly taking a stand in this moment to say that, people who do not speak English should not have access to the ballot in Georgia. Um, what does this say about the things that we should be concerned about if, if he was to ultimately become Georgia's next secretary of state? Well, I think this kind of is a corollary to what we have seen from John Barrow and his campaign, uh, not, not on a negative side, but a positive side. Cause you know, some people have given Barrow a lot of grief because He's been pushing a lot of redistricting reforms and a lot of election reforms on the campaign trail as Secretary of State. And as people have very, very quickly pointed out, as Secretary of State, you can't really do that. Like, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's like your job is to enforce the law as it stands. You can't change the law. You can't unilaterally do a lot of these things. And so, really, I think this is just McCoon doing the exact same thing, just from the exact opposite direction, whereas, you know, Barrow is trying to make elections easier and more fair. McCoon's trying to make them harder and less fair. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about um, some of the the history behind this. This was the part that I found the most interesting, and, and this is where, you know, we're we're not entirely sure of what McCoon's beliefs are. And, and McCoon would probably say that, no, he is not a white supremacist. And that the reason that he is doing um, the, that he's proposed this policy is that he wants to save the state money and ensure that uh, people who are immigrants and who come to this country have a lot of incentive to learn English and that English is an important part of them being successful. Yeah. And, and those things are not untrue. They, they are true. Um, but these ideas in themselves, the way in which making it harder for immigrants to participate in society and, and to make it more difficult for them or, and to make it less appealing for them to come here. These are ideas that are also rooted in a lot of long-term long-time white supremacy rhetoric. Um, the English only movement actually began in the 1980s with this guy, John Tanton. He was interestingly a very liberal person. He was the head of a Sierra Club chapter, and he uh, founded an immigration reductionist organization that he wanted progressives to be a part of, um, in, including his colleagues in the Sierra Club. And he tried to convince people at Planned Parenthood that reducing immigration was this sort of centrist position that uh, would be good for constituencies that liberals care about, particularly low-income people and African-Americans. But when other liberal groups were like, no, that's stupid, John, <laughs> he moved on and uh, decided that if he couldn't do it from the centrist position, that he was going to do it from the fully racist position. Oh, good. And so, uh, yeah, big improvement here from John Tanton in the 1980s. He was a part of a group that was pushing a referendum in Arizona to adopt a similar policy that would prohibit Arizona state government from doing business in any language other than English. 
And during his push for this in the 1980s, he wrote a memo where he raised concerns about Hispanics' high fertility rates and low educational levels and religious background. And he asked his colleagues that were pushing this proposal with him, he asked the question, he says, as whites see their power and control over their lives declining, will they simply go quietly into the night or will there be, will there be an explosion? Um, there was this long article from 2011 that sort of re recounts John Tanton's history on this issue. And when he was a part of a board in the 1980s that was pushing these policies and had some sort of liberal centrist buy-in. And then when this memo came out um, and his true racial motivations were kind of revealed, the sort of liberal and centrist elements that thought, some of this was a good idea, kind of backed off. And Tanton dove headlong into like eugenics and was corresponding with a, a lawyer for the KKK from Georgia and commended the publisher of a magazine who said that America is an increasingly dangerous and disagreeable place because the growing number because of the growing number of blacks and Hispanics. To that guy, John Tanton said uh, that he was saying a lot of things that needed to be said. Um, Interestingly, John Tanton founded three immigration reductionist organizations, one of which continues to pursue this English-only movement. Um, and uh, interestingly, Phil Kent, who runs Insider Advantage, he's on uh, Fox 5's morning show, Sunday morning show in Atlanta. Um, he's also on the board of this organization with uh, Tanton, who's now retired, but uh, the, the legacy of Tanton's work has been immigration reductionist and very racist. And one of the primary policies that Tanton has sought to push these views through is to restrict government from doing business in any language other than English. And so it becomes problematic to me, you know, these ideas are meant to keep white people in the majority and combat against this idea that demographics will lead to the decline of, of white people in the country and around the world. Um, and so, you know, whether or not McCoon believes all of these things, the policies that he is pursuing in this constitutional amendment are driving in the same direction as, uh, some of the most vile white supremacists in the country. Um, and so, you know, that's not a good thing. No. And I mean, again, it's, it's what I've come to expect from Josh McCoon. And honestly, I'm surprised he hasn't done more of this stuff, uh, as he's leaguing himself up to run for secretary of state. And it's just, it's, it's one of those things that there are no real solid arguments on the other side for. And I think it's our role to just like call that out because while, like, yes, it is It is good to encourage people to learn English because it will help them. Like, I, and there's no question that if it, someone comes to this country and does not understand English, that's going to be, like, hard for them to acclimatize to that. However, the way to help people acclimatize to it is not by shutting off all access to government <laughs> and not allowing uh, any of the population that hasn't learned English yet to, you know, not have any interaction with the government. And it's just going to be counterproductive and it's going to make people feel less acclimatized. And, you know, the goal is to get everyone to a place where they feel like they are an American citizen rather than a citizen of where they are immigrating from. And I think quite clearly this is counterproductive to that. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing here is that this is a constitutional amendment proposal, and so it requires a two-thirds vote of approval from both the House and the Senate. And so Democrats can block this on a party-line vote if any, if every Republican supported this idea. Which I don't think they would. I don't would. think it's clear that they do. Um, then Democrats could stop it from happening. So to some extent, I, I don't think that this bill is actually a very serious one. Um, but it, in that context, it's interesting because the reason you would introduce it then is that it's a messaging bill. And then the message that John McCoon is, Josh McCoon is trying to send with this bill is that he doesn't want government to be accessible to people who don't speak English. And as the uh, potentially the next secretary of state, that, that becomes really problematic. Um, well, the, you know, there's something tangentially to this I want to hit on, which I found fascinating about this session. 
most of the time in election year, we'd see a lot more of this. And considering that Donald Trump is our president, that he ran on and won a, running an incredibly negativist campaign, what do you think it says that this isn't getting more support and that the Republicans are not lining up to support this bill? Is it just simply the fact that Josh McCoon is is doing it? Or is it a fact that... I have a theory, so I want I want to keep my my thoughts to myself until I hear your answer. Well, to be clear, there are six co-sponsors for this amendment in the Senate side, and this identical language did pass the Senate in 2016. Um, so I don't know that there's zero support for this bill, but I think it it gets tougher in the House than it does in the Senate, um, as a lot of the less than serious stuff usually does in this discussion. I don't know. I think that there's probably a couple things at play. Everyone points to Amazon all the time as sort of the umbrella, uh, the gatekeeper to all the crazy stuff happening this time around that, you know, we don't want to do anything to push out Amazon or, or to make them think that we're not welcoming. Um, I will not, I will, I will say that is not my theory. So, and yeah, I don't, I think that that, I think that to some extent that can also be a convenient talking point or a convenient thing to fall back on, although a somewhat ironic thing to fall back on for Democrats and liberals. Um, the other thing, though, that I think is happening is that the political tide is clearly going to go against the Republicans this time around. And that is kind of to be expected as right now the Republicans hold the House and the Senate and uh, the presidency. And so increasingly people are voting against the party in power during midterm elections. And so some of the other message bills that you've seen, there was the one from Megan Hansen about um, instituting a hate crimes law. And she's a Republican running in a, I think like a 50, 50 district. And, and her messaging bill is one that looks to Democrats and liberals and tries to get their support. Um, so I, I think that it's sort of the broader political environment. Um, Kyle, are that, you insinuating that Megan Hansen has not, single-handedly solve the transportation crisis in Atlanta? <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> I got to lay off Megan Hansen a little bit because she did, I can't remember what it was that she tweeted about, but I saw some bill that she's sponsoring that I think is a part of like the creation of the regional transportation organizations. But my thing at the beginning of this for her was say that during the campaign, run on that issue. If you think that that's what you wanted to do, and not run on just saying, well, I'm going to be on the committee. And so everything's going to be. Well, okay. she is on the committee. So. And she's doing things. She should have said what she would do in the beginning. Yeah. Well. But what was your theory? Well, on my this, theory was. Uh, broader issue. I, I would just say more emphatically that I think they are afraid. And I think after seeing what happened in Athens and seeing the results from around the state, the couple special elections that we've had, I think they are deeply, deeply concerned. Uh, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I, I definitely want to put an asterisk. I think Amazon is part of it. It's just not as big of a part of it that people say. Um, but I think it's it's that they are hedging that if they don't look reasonable this time around, that that's not going to play in their favor. Because I remember back in 2014, I mean, they were – pumping out a lot of red meat bills i mean they had rifra like seemed very strong that year they had you know good you know campus carry originally came in a big way that year so i I'm, i've i've just been shocked really that there's not been more of this especially because of trump winning and the things that he ran on and the things that he's he's pushed out so i i will be very curious to see because um Really, looking at the elections, the the problem has been twofold in that Democrat, well, problem for them, not problem for us, is that Democrats have turned out at incredibly high levels and Republican turnout has been, incre you know, very, very depressed. And so they're not giving their voters a whole lot to uh, <laughs> to hold on to, which, you know, I'm fine with that because uh, it'll probably uh, help us win. Well, the interesting thing about the constitutional amendment part of this is that it would put a question on the ballot in November that would probably be designed to draw out Republican voters to support something like this. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that it's actually going to happen. It's probably not going to make it to the ballot. Uh, but at least Josh McCoon and, and the other sponsors of this constitutional amendment think that putting this issue on the ballot, surprisingly in a year that is expected to go very heavily against 
uh, I think against this anti-immigrant sentiment, but against Republicans broadly, um, to me, even if you got it through the House and the Senate, this looks like one that would get smacked pretty hard um, in, on the no column in terms of the voters actually rejecting it. If if it turns out that the advocates on this issue are able to make plain that uh, that this is about making it harder for immigrants to exist in Georgia and not about uh, saving the like $8 that not printing multi-language ballots would save the state. Let's get sad. Yeah. All right. So uh, with that, I think we'll move on to our final topic this week. Um, So a very sad story out of uh, South Florida last week where 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, were killed when a 19-year-old former student of the school entered the school with an AR-15 assault rifle, pulled the fire alarm, um, and basically opened fire on students at the school. This is something that's been all over the news, so I think the basic parameters of this, I think people understand. I think the question on people's minds with this one as they were with Vegas, as they were with Newtown is, does this actually spur any action from Congress or even from state government in Florida to do something about this? Or is this just a fact of life that we live with now because people prioritize the uh, ability to own guns, particularly guns like an AR-15 that is only designed to inflict maximum harm against somebody. Um, Do people value that over the lives of whether it's elementary school students in Newtown or concert goers in Las Vegas or high school students here in Parkland, Florida? Um, I'm pretty pessimistic that there will be any change, but, but Luke, do you feel like uh, there's any possibility that this is any different than any of the other ones? Well, I won't speak for the government of Florida because I try as much as uh, possible to not think about Florida when I can. So, um, I'm going to continue that. But more more importantly, what this shows me is that thoughts and prayers are not going to be enough for our generation. And while the current generation of political leadership has completely abdicated on this issue and that they will just continue to put their heads in the sand and not think about it and not do anything about it, it's not going to stay that way. And I think what is really interesting to me is that this is an issue that this country has been dealing with for about 20 years because Columbine was 1999, I think. So this is something that really the generation that grew up with it is just starting to get into political power. And by the time I think our generation is in there, we will come up with a solution to this problem because we prioritize the lives of our fellow students and our fellow young people way more than the adults in this country do um i don't know why i can i you know this if if there's been a recurring theme of this show it's been luke and kyle don't understand how other people don't see the obvious answer to big problems and this this one is the the most frustrating of of all because it's incredibly unnecessary there's no good public policy reason to to allow these types of weapons. There's no, there's nothing positive coming out of this. Uh, the, and the only argument you can make for something positive coming out of it is it's fun to shoot these guns, which is unarguably true. I've never shot an AR-15, but I've shot a ton of guns in my life. Uh, I am from South Georgia. It's what we do down there. But, I mean, that sacrifice is one that I would be willing to make uh, for the lives of children. Like, you know, people, obviously there's a mental health issue here. Uh, obviously there's a white supremacy issue here. Since again, if you look into this guy's history, there's a lot of that too. Uh, there's a lot of domestic violence situations that are, you know, the spawning of a lot of these school shootings or, uh, mass shootings, this is not as hard to solve as people like to pretend it is. And I think if we've seen anything from the reaction of the students at the school is that at a certain point, the folks that think this is more important than the lives of children will uh, age out of being in power. And the generation of people that are sick of dealing with this will age in. And 
a solution will be found. And that is a really crappy place to be. Um, but I think in, in the interim, we're going to have to just keep pushing and holding people accountable. And for, again, all issue, all three issues that we've talked about tonight, uh, this is just more encouragement to uh, go out and vote and get rid of the people that are unwilling to address these issues. Yeah, I think in terms of the students at, at Parkland High School uh, really forcing their voice to be heard on this. I think now's a good chance to play a clip from a speech that Emma Gonzalez made. She's a student at this high school. Um, Here's what she had to say about the impasse between politicians not addressing this issue. The people in the government who were voted into power are lying to us. And us kids seem to be the only ones who notice and are prepared to call BS. Companies trying to make caricatures of the teenagers nowadays saying that all we are is self-involved and trend-obsessed, and they hush us into submissions when our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation, we are prepared to call BS. Politicians! Politicians who sit in their gilded House and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this, we call BS! We say that tough... They say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS. No, they say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS that us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. If you agree, register to vote. Contact your local congresspeople. Give them a piece of your mind. So yeah, to, to build off what you said, Luke, the interesting thing that I saw is that there are the the students that were high school age during Columbine and in, in, in the late nineties, they're old enough to be parents now and their, their children are now in school. Um, and so you can almost see this bridge between the, the oldest generation of folks who were in high school age when Columbine happened and draw it all the way down to um, students like Emma Gonzalez, who, who we just heard from, and see that there there is a coalition of people, at least in sort of the millennial and the next generation of voters who who really don't think that the inaction on this issue is acceptable at all. Um, you know, I hope that 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 new coalition as it came to power would be able to change the formula on this. Um, but, you know, my faith in this issue, my faith in policymakers to care about making changes about this uh, really went out the window after uh, the Newtown shooting. I mean, if you, if if a dozen elementary school kids are murdered in their school and uh, this generation of politicians cannot well do something well, about I that. I mean, one, th- one thing I think we, we both need to acknowledge is that there's there has been something that's also been true between Newtown and where we are now, which is there's not been a Democratic majority in Congress. So I, I yeah. kind of am of the belief that it will not take very long for a new Democratic majority to uh, to, you know, pass some legislation to affect this issue because the, we're, we're in a different time now where the NRA used to have very legitimate claim to being a like more bipartisan organization where there were members of both parties who were very prominent NRA members. And that's just not true anymore. They've become so right wing in a way that like if you had seen it in the 90s, what they're going to become, you'd be genuinely surprised. I mean, it's taken a while for them to get to the place where they are and it's just the the policy shift that has happened there and the really radical approach that they have taken to this issue is not one that you would have foreseen even 20 years ago so i think on that front it is really important to point out that this is a political issue and that it's been a political failure of the republican party and in you know uh if 
the Democratic Party does not do anything about it when we get in power again, which hopefully will be very soon, then I will be equally condemning their inaction on it. But as of right now, this has been the failure of the Republican leadership, not a failure of just the Democrats or just the or, or the whole you know leadership rather. It's just been the one party that's been in charge. Now, what do you think the limits of possibilities for Democrats should be on this issue? Because I've seen uh, some analysis of this that suggests that some of this stuff that's kind of been under this umbrella of common sense gun regulations that have been discussed since Newtown, things like improving background checks, making sure that um, sales at gun shows are... uh, uh, sales at gun shows occur under the same accountability and oversight that sales at a gun shop would. Um, But part of the problem with this issue and part of the problem with the number of deaths that occur because of guns in general is just because of the fact that there are so many guns in the country. And when you look internationally at what other countries have done to address gun violence in the wake of similar tragedies like these, Australia stands out for having done a big gun buyback program where they basically said, one of the things that we have to do is we have to make sure that there aren't as many guns in this country as there were prior to this tragedy. And so what is not on the agenda right now for Democrats, at least as far as I've seen, um, is trying to pursue some sort of policy that would actually encourage people to give up their guns, um, this is the the boogeyman version of this that Republicans often raise was that Barack Obama was coming for your guns and he was going to take them from you. But the way that this has actually been implemented in policy in other countries is that they go through a buyback process where they buy your gun from you. Um, and in my opinion, uh, if you were going to do something like that, there would be good reason to buy back these guns at maybe double the value of what they're worth or something that creates a large incentive for a big number of people to give their guns up and to um, you know limit access to guns in a lot of these circumstances. But but do you think that the the umbrella of common sense gun protections that were discussed after Newtown and have kind of been the uh, mainstay of democratic position on this issue. Do you think that that's enough or do you think that progressives need to push Democrats to do even more? I mean, I think we should be pushing this issue further. I'm not sure how far is, is the right way. Um, and I also want to point out, I mean, getting, getting the stuff that we've asked for post Newtown would do significant help to diminish how much this is happening. And I think that should not be a reason to, uh, you know, prevent us from doing that. I mean, if we have to do it through, a pot, you know, gradualism, then, you know, fine. That's how we do it. But in the meantime, we have to figure out what steps we can take to actually solve this problem. Because if not, it's going to keep happening and it's going to get worse. You know, people will figure out ways to you know, do this beggar and they will find ways to harm more people. And it's just frankly untrue that it makes no difference if it is a AR-15 or a pistol or a knife. Like there is significant difference in the amount of harm that you can do and the ease of killing people that you can have with these different weapons. And so on that front, I mean, we just have to find a way to solve this problem because it's it's not going to solve itself and at this point yeah i'm so tired of dealing with it and having to talk about it so much on here and also knowing that the current leadership will do absolutely nothing about it and that is at this point just completely unacceptable it always has been. It's always been unacceptable. It's been unacceptable since Newtown. That uh, I mean, well, it's been even Columbine. Since Columbine, it's been unacceptable. But you know, we're we're just gonna keep turning our schools into looking more and more like prisons rather than doing the same thing of trying to address the gun issue. We're going to you know put our students behind more and more layers of security so that you know high security prisons are, are less fortified than elementary schools. So I'm going to say something, Luke, that's going to surprise you here. 
Um, you know who was the absolute worst in responding to this tragedy? Who's that? Donald Trump. What? No. <laughs> no <laughs> I know, way. I know. I know. You weren't expecting that plot twist. I wasn't. Uh, I'm so surprised. Trump, in, in addition to trying to place the blame on the people of the Parkland community in terms of not reporting uh, some of the the mental health issues that uh, the shooter appeared to have, um, he tweeted out after he tried to lay blame on the people in the community, he tweeted out where he said, very sad that the FBI missed all of the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They are spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. Get back to the basics and make us all proud. So he tried to use the tragic deaths of 17 people in a Florida school to distract from the investigation into whether or not Russia interfered in the 2016 election. At this point, my only question is, like, I'm wondering if he thought that was going to work and that, like, everyone on the news would be like, President Trump is right. If only we hadn't paid so much attention to the Russia stuff that we would have been able to save all those kids. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, at this point, you know, I it's frustrating that he is the president so that we actually have to talk about him um, because if if he wasn't then we could just ignore him the same way they got ignore sean Hannity. but he's the president for some reason this country made that decision and we have affirmatively found the worst person among among all of us and he's luckily there's a much much sooner way we can solve that problem we don't have to deal with trump for 1,600, uh, sorry, 1,065 days, 16 hours, and 34 minutes, and then he will uh, hopefully be uh, standing at the Capitol looking at whoever is his successor. Well, that'll be a great day. Yes, it will, hopefully. Or a Um, day of American carnage. I don't, I actually thought a lot about the American carnage speech this week um, that was his inaugural, uh, and he... In that speech, he had tried to lay out how terrible America was and and how great he was going to make it merely by being president. And between um, shootings like these and the way in which he has ramped up deportation efforts of immigrants and the way in which he spent most of the year in conjunction with Republicans in Congress trying to rip away health care from millions of people who who needed to survive i think that uh if you want to look at somebody bringing american carnage to america uh, you don't have to look much further than the president um unfortunately there there is some interesting politics in this rick scott the governor of florida he is uh reportedly aiming for a bid for the U.S. Senate after his term as governor is up this year. Uh, He would be challenging uh, Florida Democrat Bill Nelson for the Senate seat there. Uh, Bill Nelson has been a Democratic senator from Florida for quite some time, and he's been able to win in an environment where Republicans have been successful in, in for the most part, taking over uh, state government in Florida. Um, He said, Rick Scott said that the director of the FBI, Chris Ray, ought to resign over the FBI's mishandling of tips related to the shooter. Um, But interestingly enough, Florida state government, their social services department had actually done an investigation into the shooter and into his home life and had actually concluded that uh, the shooter was a low threat despite some of the behavioral issues that he'd had, um, including having a Nazi symbol and a racial epithet on his backpack, and uh, the fact that he intended to purchase a gun for unknown reasons, the Florida Social Services Department that was investigating uh, the shooter basically said that, you know, there's not much we can do. There's he's, he's not much of a threat at this time. And so Scott asked for full accountability from the FBI and demanded that the FBI director resign, uh, which is an interesting idea given that Scott is a pretty big supporter of President Trump. But I don't, I haven't heard the question yet about whether or not uh, Rick Scott should resign over the fact that his state social service department also failed to, uh, you know, respond to the potential threat here. Um, 
I don't really care about the politics of this, but if someone's failure to address gun violence costs them politically, um, I would find that to be a promising sign that even Republicans would eventually come around to to doing something about this. Because to this point, they haven't had to pay a political price for inaction on this. They've actually, since Newtown, have consistently ramped up their uh, majorities in Congress and, and taken the White House. Um, and so as a forcing mechanism on Republicans to come to the table on this, having them lose a potentially winnable Senate seat uh, because of accountability on this issue might be something that would be a positive in uh, getting good policy passed here. But with that, I think we're going to wrap this up for the week. A uh, pretty somber week here in the news. And so hopefully we'll have we'll have some better news to talk about in the future. Uh, but for now, uh, we will uh, let you guys go. And next time you hear from us, you'll hear one of our first interviews with a statewide candidate, uh, somebody who is not running for governor. Um, but we, uh, Luke had a really interesting discussion with a candidate that we're excited to bring you guys next week. Uh, so looking forward to that and looking forward to checking back in on how the legislative session is going. Uh, but for now, we will let you guys go for the week and we will talk to you guys next week. Bye guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.